Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is back on the Three Martini Lunch. More on his trip to Texas a little bit in the second martini. Unless you want to say something now, Jim. How was Texas? <laughs> a lot more enjoyable than uh, than the Jets game on Sunday. Uh, no, it was terrific. It was it was uh, yeah, wonderful to see so many supporters of National Review. It's where the National Review Institute uh, annual dinner was. The other thing I kind of observed in my the Friday morning jolt is that particularly if you're flying in, you know, Uber wants you to wear a mask in the car. Okay, fine. Uh, at the airport, the Federal Aviation Administration requires you to wear masks everywhere in the airport unless you're eating or drinking or something. Okay, fine. Don't want you to do on the airplane. Okay, fine. Um, then they want you, you know, obviously the Uber driver in Dallas, want you, air, same thing for Dallas Fort Worth airport, same thing for the Uber driver down there. And so in the hotel we were at, they said, if you're in common areas, please wear your mask. I'd say about two thirds of the people were doing that. Um, the others who weren't were, were, you know, it's a big lobby. It's not like people were right next to each other. So basically from my driveway where the Uber driver picked me up to my hotel room, I was pretty much required or strongly asked to wear a mask every step of the way. And this is in, you know, we're, we're going to do whatever the heck we want, Texas, which I think is kind of interesting. I think the, the argument that we are beyond masks in this country and nobody's wearing them anymore uh, is at least slightly exaggerated, or maybe it's just the, the circles that I was traveling in these past couple of days. Wow. Wow. Well, you're right, and you alluded to it. Uh, we both cheer for teams that allegedly play professional football. Uh, the Jets gave up 54 points to the Patriots yesterday, and the Bears certainly could have if the Buccaneers had cared to score more touchdowns. It's not like they didn't have the opportunities. Uh, 38 to three, the uh, the Bears lost to the Bucks. So uh, anyway, yeah, uh, but Greg, your team didn't have two weeks to prepare because of the bye week. <laughs> that was that was the Jets with extra time to prepare. It's it's you know that was way better than they usually do. Yeah, I'm sure if the Bears had an extra week, it would have been really, really different. But anyway, John Gabriel was in for you last week. Thanks to John. Uh, he cheers for the Packers and the Cardinals, who are 13-1 and one combined. So, I don't know. Maybe he's... It's his year. <laughs> it's, it's his year. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on to our good martini now. And I believe this uh, either broke Friday or uh, Saturday. I think it was Friday. The National School Board Association, which, you know, sent out that letter a couple weeks back saying that uh, parents getting all worked up at school board meetings, allegedly threatening school board members. Um, Could you please investigate these people, President Biden, as potential domestic terrorists? Then lo and behold, Attorney General Merrick Garland says we're going to have the FBI look at this situation as a potential terrorist. Then we find out, thanks to the reporting of the Free Beacon and uh, emails obtained by the watchdog group Parents Defending Education, uh, looks like that the Biden administration and the National School Board Association had been cooking this up behind the scenes long before that letter came out. And now, due to the backlash to this, the National School Board Association is retracting its letter. Here's the Free Beacon story on it. The country's largest school board association apologized late Friday for its letter to President Biden, calling on the FBI to investigate parents as potential domestic terrorists. The National School Board Association said in a memo to its members that, quote, there was no justification, unquote, for some of the language in the letter, which was sent to Biden on September 29th, quote, on behalf of NSBA, we regret and apologize for the letter. Not a direct apology to the parents that they accused of being terrorists. Still no word on whether Merrick Garland's going to call off the dogs from the FBI on this, though, uh, Jim. But uh, it's good to know that uh, a little bit of investigative reporting, a little bit of pushback from people who don't like to be called terrorists, especially when they're not. And you can get people to admit that, uh, you know, the whole accusation was a crock in the first place. Greg, in this, I feel like I'm seeing two, two phenomenon that we have run into with frustrating regularity 
uh, in this. The first is uh, I'm going to call the Emily Latella effect in in news. It's inspired by the Gilda Radner character where you're told something and it seems like it's a really big deal and it seems like it's really significant and something you should know. And then a few days later or sometimes weeks later or sometimes even months later, the media comes, oh, I'm sorry, never mind. That was not true. That was not actually the case. And I'm sure examples are coming to people's minds, but like a couple of things that just in, you know, writing something else about the pandemic and just kind of came to mind was like, remember when I was telling you it was going to take years to develop a vaccine? And we actually had one in less than a year. Um, you could think of Andrew Cuomo and all of the laudatory coverage that he received for at least the first year of this pandemic. Um, and then just about all the time we were told, you know, reopening schools was going to lead to teachers dying off and, and students. It just wasn't safe. Across the country, the vast majority of schools have been open five days a week since September, in some cases, mid-August. Um, have they had some cool schools that had to cl- shut down because of a lot of cases? Yeah, but by and large, across the country, they, people have figured out how to manage it. And that's, you know, you kind of wonder, did we really need to shut them down for the entirety of, or, or to have uh, for the entirety of the previous school year? Uh, did we really need to be four days a week or two days a week as they were here in Fairfax County? All the time we get told stuff and it's not really true. And this is obviously very relevant to the governor's race going on here in Virginia. We were told basically on this letter that they were the, the school boards across the country were beset by these domestic terrorists committing hate crimes. That this was, you know, that being on a school board was one of the most dangerous things you could possibly do besides being a Jets quarterback. And that there was no protection, you know, just like for, for poor Zach Wilson. And you end up with this situation where, um, whipping up in this firestorm, this frenzy. Well, the first thing is we find out that the guy who was allegedly the poster boy for these violent, unhinged, dangerous parents, well, he was a guy down in Loudoun County whose daughter had been raped in the bathroom of his school. And, you know, most of us would say, look, you know, is it right that he grabbed or had a tussle with a cop? No, that's not okay. But at the same time, if your daughter was raped, yeah, you'd be furious too. Um, then so there was the first sense of like, oh, the guy who was the poster boy there was a whole bunch of other context to that story that was ignored in this. And then secondly, bit by bit, you started getting these other you know, branches of the National School Board Association, state branches saying, well, no one asked us about this. We, we, we would not have worded it that way. We don't, we know actually the increasing grumbling. Now it just feels like somebody's decided on their own to decide, I'm gonna create a story here. I'm gonna create a narrative that there isn't really a you know growing sense of frustration among parents that schools have not pulled their weight since the pandemic started that they're trying to indoctrinate kids with crazy stuff, whether it's sex ed stuff or critical race theory or stuff like that. No, no, no. We're going to create this idea that basically it's militia members, like that that every parent who shows up to a school board meeting is basically Timothy McVeigh and this dangerous domestic terrorist type that has to be investigated by the FBI and ideally put, put behind bars for hate crimes. And now we find out, actually, no, never mind. That wasn't the case at all. This was, this was somebody who wanted to create a political narrative and largely succeeded Although I do wonder if there's been a certain amount of political backlash. Um, two fascinating other aspects of this, uh, Greg. You and I are both in Northern Virginia. Have you seen the sign that says Terry McAuliffe 2021, keep parents out of schools? Yes. Okay. Like So that's the first thing. And I can't tell if that's a <laughs> Youngkin supporter being sarcastic or whether that's a Democrat honestly saying what they're thinking. And today in the Wall Street and the Washington Post, actually, there's an op-ed from somebody saying parents think they have a right to shape their children's education, but they're wrong. Um, and, you know, a very bright mind. Actually, uh, Caleb Howe uh, was the one who first person one who I saw saying, uh, doesn't that count as an in-kind contribution to the Youngkin campaign? <laughs> you know, we always said that education was going to be a, a potentially critical issue, given everything that happened during the pandemic. I can't imagine 
McAuliffe, you know, stepping on more rakes to make this a, a bigger issue and a bigger advantage for Glenn Youngkin. So if Glenn Youngkin can't win in this environment, I'm not sure it's possible to win, given how pathetic Terry McAuliffe has been, currently is, and how the issues are stacking up here. But Virginia, of course, has been a, a blue state in statewide races for a dozen years now, so it's not going to be easy. Uh, Jim, so what happens here? Does the does the NSBA just... Does, Get a get a mulligan on this. Going, <laughs> you know, turns out you're not terrorists. Anyway, back to back to business as usual. In any like responsible, competent organization, you'd like to think at minimum you'd have a review of okay, how the hell did we put out a statement worded like this that basically accused parents of being domestic terrorists without checking with our state branches, without there anybody like who who knew about this and when and why and how, why did they think this was a good idea? Where was anybody to stop? Uh, the leadership from from making this, you know, really embarrassing decision. I really don't expect that to happen. And I think the more uh, it's kind of a a reflection of this phenomenon Yuval Levin has discussed, Um, this idea that leaders no longer see their positions as one of stewardship and responsibility, and the idea that they're supposed to safeguard the organization and its reputation um, to to make it as, you know, to, to cultivate it, to make it stronger, and then pass it on to someone else when they're done, Increasingly, people, leaders see organizations as platforms for them to tell everyone else how the world ought to be. And, you know, Yuval Levin points out how terrible this is and how much this is causing enormous loss of faith in institutions. Like, why should anybody listen to anything else the National Association of School Boards has to say on any issue after an embarrassment like this one? Exactly. And what does Merrick Garland do now? I mean, last week he was testifying before the House uh, Judiciary Committee, I believe. And I think it was Chip Roy of Texas who asked him about uh, the situation in Loudoun County. And given the fact that this dad had been the poster child for why the FBI needs to be investigating these parents, you'd think that uh, Merrick Garland would know a little bit about the rest of the story. But he claimed he knew nothing about it. And it was a state issue. Uh, nothing for him to be concerned about. <laughs> so. Well, Greg, remember, you know, you can't be found in contempt of Congress for lying with that answer. Plead okay. ignorance. They can't prove it. I'm just an idiot, Congress. I don't know any of this stuff. <laughs> that was the good martini. It's, I mean, it's good they're retracting it, but man, there's still a lot of lingering frustration there. Uh, it'll ease a little bit depending on what happens next Tuesday. But uh, man, man, just incredible that they tried to get away with it. That's really the story there. Is That should have been the statement. <laughs> we thought we'd get away with it and we didn't because uh, that's the only reasonable explanation here. But uh, Theragun uh, will make the stress of dealing with uh, school boards who are not listening to you, maybe the National School Board Association, maybe the Justice Department freaking you out. Don't let that stress or any other stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can really help. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good. It gets to the source of your pain by releasing tension. Using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. Now, whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out or you're trying to recover from an injury or it's just the stress of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design make you feel like you're holding something from the future. Just go to their site and check it out. And the Theragun app learns from your behaviors and suggests guided routines. We absolutely love the Theragun. Whether you just have sore muscles or whether you want a guided routine, that app can definitely help you out in in either of those situations. Uh, Sore shoulders, sore quads, sore feet. My wife was actually just telling me the other day that, uh, you know, she's had trouble uh, 
uh, getting some exercise in because her feet had been hurting her. Maybe a little bit of plantar fasciitis, and she started using the Theragun on that. Theragun, as far as I know, doesn't promise uh, to help with that, but she says her feet have been feeling better since she used the Theragun uh, after having that problem. And so uh, we're definitely thankful for the Theragun in that respect. And Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, hundreds of thousands of customers, and yes, me. So try Theragun for 30 days starting at just $199. Go to therabody.com slash martini right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash martini, therabody.com slash martini. All right, Jim, I said at the top we'd be talking more about your trip to Dallas and the National Review Institute event in our bad martini, and that's also the uh, reason that uh, that trip leads the morning jolt today, because as much as you know, as much angst as we have about the economy right now with inflation and supply chain issues and uh, everything else, there's reason to believe that uh, we might be headed towards a recession. So I know you heard from uh, Kevin Hassett, who actually is affiliated with National Review now, used to work in the Trump administration. What did he tell you? What else did you learn down there that makes you think that uh, we could be having this added onto our plate as well? Sure. Well, Kevin Hassett, you know, wrote for National Review, then went to join the Trump administration as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, and then fo- subsequently as a uh, uh, advisor to Trump, he was actually helping, ironically, supply chain issues during the beginning of the pandemic. He went back to uh, to work in the administration. You know, you have to keep in mind, Kevin Hassett is probably one of the cheeriest, most amiable, easygoing, uh, you know, just, just a, a full of pep and, and, you know, energy guy. And he wasn't in a bad mood. He was, he was his usual cheerful, cheerful self. But his assessment of what's coming down the road economically, the phrase I used in the morning, Joel, was he's darker than Rembrandt's night watch. Viewed through sunglasses at midnight during a power outage. It was really, really dark. And so there are a couple of, you know, things that I remember from the talk. And, and, you know, if you really want to get the full thing, you should probably read Kevin Hassan or maybe even join National Review Institute and supporters and go go see him yourself. But anyway, um, so we're going to get the the, uh, third quarter GDP numbers on Thursday. Everybody thinks they're going to be down from the previous one, which was 6.7%. But they don't know how much it's going to be down. The general consensus is, you know, 3% or 2.8. That's not great. In fact, that's really pretty lousy uh, if we're supposed to be recovering from the pandemic here. But it's worth noting there are a bunch of folks who say, actually, no, it could be much lower. IHS market has it at 1.5%. The Atlanta Federal Reserve's GDP now forecast is just half of 1%. Well, the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of GDP shrinkage, you know, where it doesn't go up, it actually gets smaller. So we probably won't have it this quarter or in the third quarter. Thursday, we're probably not going to get, oh, the, you know, the economy shrank in the third quarter, but it's probably going to be a not good number for a com- economy that's supposed to be bouncing back. And here's the problem is that the third quarter, which includes, you know, July, August, September, those were the good old days compared to what we're going through now with all the supply chain issues, with energy prices up, uh, worker shortages, uh, inflation, I mean, you name it, we've got all kinds of economic problems. And of course, you've probably been hearing about how, oh, we're going to have uh, you know, problems with Christmas sales because there's not going to be enough stuff on the shelves. And also, so all, usually that end of the year surge in economic activity that you usually get that's driven in large part by Christmas shopping or Hanukkah shopping or whatever you're doing at the end of the year may not be there, may not you know, kick off the way it usually does. And that's, you know, that, so we, the idea is that probably we could have a really meh to not so good number this quarter, uh, the, the quarter that you know, it's coming Thursday, this quarter that we're in could be worse 
the idea of it being shrinkage is not all that unthinkable. And here's the other thing is that all the supply chain issues, you talk to anybody who's following this stuff, they really don't think this is going to be done in a couple of months. They really think this is going to be continuing into 2022 and maybe well into 2022. So we're going to have probably not great numbers in the last quarter of 2021, probably not great numbers in the first quarter of 2022. And honestly, some of these guys are taking a, saying it could take a year to fix this stuff. Maybe you're looking at lousy numbers for quarter number two and quarter number three of next year. So you add all that together, the odds of getting two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, that, that, that seems you know, not all that unthinkable. And even if it's not, you know, negative, you're probably looking at very low growth over the next, you know, really, really probably the next year. Uh, you know, I, I prefer it to be better, but uh, Kevin laid out all the different, you know, supply chain issues and all the different ways this causes factories to idle, which causes people to like get laid off. They get laid off. They don't have the same spending power they used to. And it turns into this vicious cycle where like each problem feeds into the next problem, very much like our problems in our supply chain. Problems at one point start continuing all the way down the line. So... Um, I hate to say it. I, I'd love to be wrong, but uh, this is this is really looking bad. And boy, you know, if you thought the outlook for the Democrats in the 2022 midterms was bad now, imagine throwing an actual full-fledged two consecutive quarters recession on top of all that stuff. At that point, you'd start seeing unemployment start going up. At that point, you'd really start seeing frustration. You know, like uh, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those things where you start looking at the 2010, 2014 midterm scenarios and saying, oh, we could even have something even bigger than that. Well, I would love to see those results. I would hate to see the country in that much misery uh, to create it, but that would probably be the likely result here. And so the solution, I guess, from uh, Democrats is to raise taxes on corporations, which would never, ever have to pass along their uh, cost of those taxes to consumers who are already facing higher inflation uh, prices. And given scarcity and shortage issues, uh, you know, those prices might even go up some more. So um, I I'm sure this economic approach uh, is just going to be a total winner here. Uh, Janet Yellen and apparently Joe Manchin are also uh, getting excited about the unrealized capital gains tax. In other words, if you don't actually sell your house, but it goes up in value, uh, and if, you, if they declare you as rich, then you pay higher taxes, even if you don't actually see that money. So good times. I was just about to say, you know, based on what they've done, so the decisions of this administration so far, how much do you trust them? <laughs> if they say, don't worry, this, this won't cause any bad side effects. What in there? What 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 they've done on the border, on inflation, on Afghanistan? What makes you look and say, "Oh no, this crew knows what they're doing." Don't worry, they won't they won't mess this up. No, this is all good stuff, Jim. It means the economy is roaring back, and until we get numbers that show that that's not happening either, so I'm sure they'll come up with another way that's totally awesome, though. Even if you subscribe to this, really strikes me as implausible spin. About oh, the reason you're having all these supply chain problems is because the economy is doing so well. Well, here's a problem. If you continue to have these kind of supply chain problems, the economy stops doing well. <laughs> right. Uh, 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 this is just a mess on so many different levels. But you know, it's not a mess. Your sleep when it comes to my pillow, they have the best products that involve your sleep, whether it's the pillows, uh, the mattress topper, uh, the slippers that you'll walk around on if you're smart uh, all day before getting into bed. But the Giza Dream Sheets are absolutely top of the line sheets, and now you can get them for a fantastic deal, uh, much less than you'd pay for for far less quality sheets. You can right now buy one, get one free on any set of Giza Dream Sheets when you use our promo code Martini at MyPillow.com. Imagine sliding into the most comfortable sheets you will ever own, guaranteed. They are made from the world's best cotton, which is grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. 
The long staple cotton makes these sheets ultra soft and breathable. The sheets are available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Now for a limited time, you can buy one, get one free on all sets of Giza Dream Sheets. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout. Or call 800-874-0104 and find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. Don't miss this sale of the year. That's MyPillow.com, promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com. All right, let's talk about our crazy martini now, Jim. And a week from tomorrow is election day in Virginia. Uh, A couple of the recent polls, one shows a dead heat at 46-46 between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. Saw another one that showed Youngkin up 43-41. Bottom line is it's very, very tight. But it's not been a good month for Terry McAuliffe ever since his whole uh, parents shouldn't be telling schools what to teach. Uh, It seems like his campaign has been in panic and damage control mode. uh, And I don't think it got a lot better with Obama in town in the last couple of days. I think Biden's supposed to be here. Kamala was in Northern Virginia, but, you know, they're about as popular as a plague. So uh, not sure that's going to help much. Uh, But another person that Terry McAuliffe brought in to stump for him uh, was Stacey Abrams, the failed Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia in 2018. But of course, she refuses to admit that. And now Terry McAuliffe is refusing to admit that, which is very odd because Terry McAuliffe's whole thing has been to try to paint Glenn Youngkin as you know a Donald Trump clone who is denying the 2020 election results, which Glenn Youngkin is not denying. He has never said uh, that Biden didn't win the election. So McAuliffe is lying about that. But uh, not to be outdone, McAuliffe now saying that Stacey Abrams really should have been elected governor because Brian Kemp, as secretary of state, disenfranchised a bunch of people in Georgia. Here's how he put it. She would be the governor of Georgia today had the governor of Georgia not disenfranchised 1.4 million Georgia voters before the election. That's what happened to Stacey Abrams. They took the votes away. It's pretty obvious to see the candidate that's confident and the candidate that's desperate right now in Virginia. I don't know that that will translate into the results we want, but Terry McAuliffe is... uh He's in he's in rough shape right now. And to uh, to basically step all over the message you've been spouting the whole year, even though it's not true with talk like this is a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, the, probably what, you know, makes Terry McAuliffe stand out in the Democratic firmament is raw, pure, unadulterated shamelessness that, that you know, in the end. And you know, he's, if you read back when he ran the first time, I read his autobiography where he talked about wrestling alligators for for donations and like it. He's always had this carnival barker, you know, ultimate, you know, snake oil salesman, you know, vibe to him that uh, used to do his work out of Cafe Milano. And like his entire career has been about the intersection of politics and business and being well connected from one to another. And you describe, oh, job creators. Remember Green Tech? Remember how they're going to create all these electric cars out in there? And, you know, the, the assessment of the state board was that this was a visa, you know, visas for sale scheme and all that stuff. And then all that stuff seemed to stick to him back in the first one. But the basic character of Terry McAuliffe has not changed. And I think part of the problem, is, you know, the, the end result of this is that he, he could look at this scenario and he could say, you know, Donald Trump really did do something bad and dangerous. And he really is eating away at public faith in our democracy by insisting that he won when he did not. I'm going to hammer him on this. I'm going to hammer Glenn Youngkin for not taking a stand. But to do that, I really have to stop playing along with Stacey Abrams' fantasy that 50,000 votes didn't exist 
and that uh, she she genuinely won. That there was some sort of you know, I don't know, it was you know Georgia swamp monsters eating the the ballots, whatever the heck her crazy conspiracy theories were. Or he could say, you know what, I really need this to drive African American turnout. Stacey Abrams is really popular. I'm going to have to play. He could do one or the other, but most people look at and say, okay, there's a glaring contradiction there. If I'm saying, well, the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia was stolen, but the 2020 presidential election in Georgia was not stolen, that that somewhere in that time, they got it completely uh, fine. It is, um, it's really kind of ridiculous. It's really kind of infuriating. I don't think this is going to be front and center uh, in the, the, you know, gubernatorial election here in Virginia. But I do think this is a really useful illustration that every time Democrats say questioning the results of the election is an attack on democracy, they don't really mean it because then they would turn around and say, hey, Stacey Abrams, you got to knock it off. And they never do that. In fact, they celebrate it. And so what it is, is that in their eyes, if a Democrat complains about the election results, then that complaint is legitimate. If a Republican complains about the election results, that is an attack on democracy and utter nonsense and conspiracy theories. And nobody in the whole wide world should pay any attention to that. Just remember that Democrats have not accepted a Republican presidential victory since 1988. You had Bush in Florida. You had uh, the Diebold conspiracy in 2004 in Ohio. Remember that uh, with Bush and Kerry. And then, of course, uh, you know, they still don't agree that Trump won in 2016, even though he won the Electoral College by over 70 votes. So for Democrats to act like they are as pure as the driven snow on accepting election results is thoroughly, thoroughly absurd. So Again, we'll see what impact any of this all has on the results next week, but uh, it's going to be a lot more interesting than we probably thought a few months ago. So we'll see. Anyway, Jim, we'll uh, tee it up again tomorrow. See you then. It's only Monday, Greg. See you tomorrow. (laughs) Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. If you don't already, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Tell your friends about us as well. Very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday. Please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Former Trump press secretary Sean Spicer joins me to discuss the Biden administration's desperate attempt to spin their many policy failures and how its progressive agenda is all about growing power for the left. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Sean and I will also discuss how so many of Biden's top advisors are thoroughly unqualified for their jobs and how Americans can take charge of their country again. Join us. Subscribe to the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.